Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Andy Boyd. Today we're talking with Joshua Chambers Letson about his book, After the Party, A Manifesto for Queer of Color Life. Joshua, welcome to the program. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. So I don't know if this is just me, but when I see manifesto in a book subtitle, I, I grab for the, I reach for the book. Um, why did you want to write? I mean, your, your book's a strange kind of manifesto, but maybe manifestos are typically strange. But what attracted you to that literary form? Um, that is a very good question. So I think uh, some of the attraction, which I name in the book, um, is um, the influence of uh, one of the more sort of famous manifestos of, I guess, the modern era, which is the communist manifesto. Um, and in particular, uh, I think in naming it a manifesto, if there's a kind of joke um, in that title, it's that um, uh, students are always surprised when they sit down to read the communist manifesto for the first time to discover that what they think is going to be an articulation of what communism is or should be or could be turns out to actually be just a pretty... Um, condensed critique of the capitalist mode of production, right? So the Communist Manifesto sort of aims at manifesting a kind of communist ethos, but it does so through its critical function. There's not really an articulation of what communism is or might be. And actually, you know, in the body of Marx's writing, um, he's not often prescriptive about what communism is or could be. Um, So you have glimmers of it in in, um, things like the critique on the Gotha program, um, but nothing that is a kind of... um, uh, programmatic articulation of this is this is the thing we are manifesting. So, in titling the book a manifesto, I kind of wanted to honor the tradition of the communist manifesto. Um, insofar as this book also does not ever make a claim for um, uh, uh, what is or what should be um, gathered under the umbrella of the title of queer of color life. Um, and I would say the other thing is that the um, sort of grammatical structure of the, the title. Um, sort of inserts the word for between manifesto and queer of color life. So 
in some ways it is in not in some ways in every way it is not meant to be a manifesto of queer of color life it is not meant to articulate what we should manifest under the sign or under the name of queer of color more nearly as it is itself a kind of manifestation of um a project towards living um that is done in the service of queer of color life um and that was what i was trying to play at with the title but then I also like the idea that you read the whole book and you get to the very end and you're like, wait, uh, the thing that was supposed to be manifested wasn't manifested, um, which is just a longer version of the, the, that little game that Marx and Engels played with their own little manifesto. Right. That's great. So uh, kind of continuing on your title page, I feel like there's also a bit of a double entendre in the word party. Calling it after the party is perhaps, you know, about that sort of groggy moment where you wake up surrounded by limbs and bodies, but also uh, also sort of, you know, after the Communist Party or, you know, after the era of the party form. So could you talk a bit about kind of the, that double entendre of, of party and maybe even if we talk about a revolutionary communist party, not in the sense of, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the political formation, but in the sense of a, uh, a gathering, a celebration? Yeah. Um, so I think um, uh, one of the things I've learned about including the title party um, in the name of the book is at least people with the sort of unfortunate um, misperception that I'm a nightlife person uh, or that I like parties. And uh, I love the idea of parties conceptually, but uh, I would much prefer to be at home with the book. Um, uh, so part of the after was just acknowledging my favorite part of a party, which is after it's over. Um, uh, but, but the sort of like real sort of reference there is, um, honoring a tradition of queer of color criticism, um, and thinking in particular of the work of Jose Munoz, um, who wrote about the sort of manifest powers of nightlife and of queer life, nightlife and of queer of color nightlife in particular, um, and the kinds of worlds that can cohere. Um, in the space of um, queer sociality um, and parties, whether it is just a party of two who are gathering to sort of speak into the long night about the world they want to imagine existing, or whether it is a gathering of friends, which is raucous and fractious and messy, um, that within those kinds of spaces, um, the book tries to describe what I see as the possibilities for um, living uh, and the possibilities for black and brown, queer and trans life to be able to live, um, not as a kind of project for the future, but as something that manifests in the present, that we see the glimmers of these potentialities and possibilities um, in sites of sociality, such as the party. Um, but the other thing that comes with that is that um, parties are ephemeral and they are um, short-lived. And in many ways, this is not unlike one of my sort of central objects of study throughout the book and in my broader work, um, which is performance and performance itself is an ephemeral form. So um, one of the things teaching in performance studies, uh, whether it's with undergrads or grads or just friends on the street is we talk a lot about what it is to account for um, an object of analysis that's always slipping away from you. Um, that has a kind of ephemerality that fades from the present um, and takes on different forms as we remember it moving it and carrying it into the future. Um, uh, so the alignment between performance and the party as these kind of ephemeral acts that fall apart and come undone seemed to me to be a kind of useful way of thinking about the way in which possibility is lived um, for minoritarian subjects. Um, 
And it seemed to me that that the ephemerality uh, was not a weakness or was not a problem with uh, any kind of politics that might manifest in such a scene, but is actually the very point, right? Which is that these kinds of comings together, these kinds of forms of sociality and communion and being and being with and being together in fractious difference um, last for as long as the party or the performance and they come undone. Um, and it strikes me, or it struck me when I was writing this, that um, living at the beginning of the 21st century, we can point to all of these various moments of political emancipation and political struggle where we see the possibility of another world coming into being, whether it's, you know, abolitionist movements in the 19th century or um, the struggles for black emancipation in the mid 20th century. And then when these movements fall apart, we live with the sort of crushing afterlife of their defeat. And so often that crushing afterlife gets narrated as a failure. So, you know, um, uh, the black power movement in the 1960s gets narrated you know, as a failure, not as something that was systematically crushed and defeated by the state, um, but as something that didn't manifest its ideals. And, and I thought, or I, at least I hoped or tried or wanted to emphasize ephemerality, um, these things that come apart, not as failures, but as just part of the process of living such that something falls apart and comes undone, but like a party or like a performance, there's always the opportunity for it to come back again, together again, another night or at another time, or even just in the sight of memory. So that was the sort of party to performance line. And then the third is um, the political party, which is that, um, uh, you know, if one can look at um, the political struggles in the 20th century um, as often being carried out through party politics, whether that is through um, the systems of um, democratic liberalism, democratic capitalist liberalism, um, in the West, or whether it is through the party system in, uh, you know, uh, the Soviet state, or in the People's Republic, um, uh, one of the things that I was trying to work through is how one can have a relationship to um, the idea of a better world that's manifested or brought about in a certain kind of communist um, line of thinking, without excusing the extraordinary forms of violence and destruction that. Uh, any number of historical communist parties carried out in the service of the party's claim to power um, or the party's agenda. Um, and I think, you know, um, it's not unreasonable to be radically distrustful of party politics, whether they are cohering within a state like the PRC, uh, where there are single party rule, or in the U.S. where there's dual party rule, I guess, um, uh, that the party itself is a kind of problem. And so some of what I was also asking us to imagine is, um, uh, how might the political energies that we have attached to historical notions of the political party and that we might see glimmers of in the space of something like queer nightlife or just sociality, people gathering together to love each other over a dinner party and fight with each other. How might we see those things without necessarily then trying to reduce them to or jack them into a political system um, that might recreate um, some of the failings and um, let's say criminal actions of um, party style politics, whether it's the communist party or the Republican or democratic party. Sorry, that's a little bit hazy and long winded. No, that was great. That, I think that that gave me plenty of opportunities to ask follow up questions, but I I'd like to ask you uh, to talk a little bit more about Jose Munoz uh, because I feel like he and his work kind of occupies a very strange place in our culture in that, uh, for example, like uh, last year, I was at 
Judge Judson Church. Um, I think I was actually there. I, I was at a protest in the park, and I went in to use the restroom, and and I saw a piece of art that was depicting Jose Munoz as a saint, which is maybe not some not a way that a lot of performance studies scholars get depicted. Uh, so I'd love you to talk about a little bit more about kind of his influence on your work. Uh, your preface is sort of addressed to him. You recently co-edited uh, his posthumous book, The Sense of Brown. So could you talk a little bit more about kind of how your work draws on his and, and what his work meant to you and what he meant to you when he was still alive? Sure. Um, I mean, I'll say up front that um, this book was an act of grief and mourning. Um, I was um, I was also a student. Um, I did my doctoral work at NYU. Um, where uh, uh, he guided me through um, my training. But more than that, um, he was a kind of queer mother to me. Um, and he was someone who taught me how to live in the world and also sort of how to be in the world. Um, so in many ways, I felt that I, I owed him a debt of living. Um, and when he died, um, uh, that was a hard thing to reconcile, what it means to feel like part of being alive and even being able to thrive came from someone who isn't here any longer. Um, I think his death um, uh, was also jarring insofar as it reconfirmed a common knowledge, which is that it is very hard um, for queer folks of color to live out full lifespans, whatever full lifespan means. Um, and uh, uh, it, I think... I don't know. I, sorry. I, I, maybe this is the thing in writing the book. When I was writing the book, I really was writing to him, I think, and trying to acknowledge that debt. I also think that writing the book was a way of working through the loss. And the one mistake that I may have made is that I thought that in working through and writing the book, it would help me to sort of grieve. And I learned two things, which is that grieving really doesn't ever end no matter what you do. Um, and second, because I wrote a book about it, <laughs> I, I would, then be talking about it for some time after, which was the the surprise. So that's the sort of personal loss. Um, and the second part of it is more the level of the work, which is that um, before I went to graduate school, I read Disidentifications, um, his first book, um, as an undergraduate student. And it was the first time that I had seen um, not the first time, but it was a clear articulation of a theoretical principle for living um, for queer of color life, one that centered um, and um, uh, really understood um, artists of color, uh, not just to be objects of analysis for the scholar, but um, to be interlocutors and theorists in their own right. And that was the first sort of major impact that one can see throughout this text is the artists throughout the book are not... Um, uh, the artists throughout the book are not um, uh, just sort of objects that I drill away at, but I think of them very much as theorists that I think alongside and try to, um, if anything, train the reader in some of the things that I learned from the artist um, as theorist. Um, uh, and then under that, there is also the actual sort of level of the intervention of his work, which um, in some ways animates some of the critical impulses throughout. So one of the things that Munoz often wrote about was the world-making capacities of performance, um, and in particular of queer performance, the way that performance can manifest other ways of being in the world um, that as he would often describe it are not yet here. And I think this is in some ways where I differentiate from my teacher is that my teacher was often emphasizing the future um, as a way of criticizing the present and materializing a kind of politics of the present. 
Um, and I very much agree with that line of thinking. Um, but one of the things that I, th- I think I emphasize here is less a horizontal possibility and more the fact that sometimes the worlds that we dream or imagine might come into view are uh, closer to us than we might imagine um, and that we can manifest those um, through something as big as a political action that is staged in the street, um, through something that is as abstract as an aesthetic gesture, and oftentimes through something as simple as, um, um, you know, uh, uh, caring for someone who is in need. Um, and those are all things that Jose wrote towards and manifested in his work. And so in trying to repay the debt of living, um, what I wrote here uh, was attempting to uh, uh, carry that forward. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's the best way to articulate it. Sure. Uh, while I was reading your book, I came across a quotation uh, by David Graeber, who's another theorist who recently passed. That was, uh, I, I, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase, but it was something like, you know, communism is whenever people are acting in accordance with the idea of uh, to each according to their need, from each according to their ability, which is actually how people just naturally act whenever they're working together to solve some common problem. And so the goal of, you know, 21st century communism is just to take those moments of already existing communism and expand them and democratize them further. It's it's not to create this kind of dream of a completely different uh, future possibility. That seems to be very resonant with a lot of the artists you describe in in this book. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, you know, I mean, um, uh, another thinker, um, I, that Graeber quote I like a lot because I think it's very straightforward and it is very graspable for fo- folks. Um, another thinker who I think may not even actually appear that much in the text but had a real influence on my thinking is Kojin Karatani, um, who is a Japanese Marxist theorist. Um, and one of the things he does in a book called The Structure of World History is to really map out the ways in which um, the forms of sociality that we often ascribe to communism materialize Um uh, at various different, actually throughout um, sort of social and historical re- registers. And for Karatani, it's a kind of question of degree, right? Um, to what degree does a sort of communist mode of sharing out manifest within a given order? And to what degree um, is uh, is that energy displaced or, or, or put somewhere else? So I often think, and something I say repeatedly through the book, is I'm not actually invested in even holding on to the word communism. Right. If we're using um, the language of communism to talk about a way of sharing out um, and redistributing resources and power so that life becomes livable for all people um, rather than enjoyable for a small few and increasingly miserable for uh, an increasingly growing section of the population, um, that 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 is not that radical idea of an idea. And it's actually something that people materialize and manifest in their daily practices, just in the way that, you know, my family, which is, uh, I would say profoundly and committedly capitalist, uh, <laughs> uh, that they engage in forms of collective care, um, that, that if expanded upon, right, could be the grounds of a form of communist sociality, um, uh, uh, that might, you know, at some point make the world more livable again. So, so part of that Graeber point and part of, I think what Katatani is gesturing towards, um, is that, is that, uh, whether we call it communism and organize it under a particular kind of Marxian ideology, which is not something I'm committed to, um, 
pressing forward, or whether we just understand it as a name describing for a way of being in the world where we recognize that we actually do have the capacity to distribute resources in such a way where, where you know, a greater number of people can thrive and where exploitation and expropriation aren't the order of the day and that we manifest those things often in our daily lives and that if we have a hard time manifesting those in our daily lives, that the aesthetic is one site where we can come and experience that and say, okay, what would it be like to grow that? What would it be like to institute that in our daily practices? And I would say as a, a final thing, um, and this is sort of you know, moving beyond the arc of the book, which was completed a couple of years ago, um, that I've seen a lot of that in the last couple of months. Um, the extraordinary, I live in Chicago, and I've seen extraordinary efforts around things like food distribution and resource distribution um, that are happening at the ground level. And it's usually young people, people in their 20s who are just, setting up a food distribution and abolitionist literature distribution stand um, here in my neighborhood, uh, in the uptown neighborhood of Chicago. Um, and that it is those acts and the proliferation of those kinds of acts, which may be ephemeral and which may fall apart after a couple of days, a couple of weeks, a couple of months, but that their cumulative force um, right, uh, may in fact be the manifestation of that better world in which we're dreaming of. And the question is, how do we expand that? Um, and enact that. And I think that is an argument that we can make for communism that is not the argument that terrifies a lot of people who associate the world, the word, with its um, historical crimes. Great. So I feel like we've kind of laid a bit of the theoretical groundwork for the book. I'd love to kind of get into some of the individual performers and performances that you talk about. And the first person who you discuss at length is Nina Simone. And you start your discussion of her by analyzing her performance at the 1976 Montreux Jazz Festival. And this is a very powerful, but kind of notoriously difficult to watch performance for, from Nina Simone. Uh, could you talk about what's revealing about this particular moment in her career? Sure. So, um, uh, you know, Simone's, um, it's, uh, I just paused for a moment, just thinking on her. It's good to take a breath um, before starting to speak about her. She demands, I think, that attention. Um, Simone, the arc of Simone's career is such that her huge worldwide celebrity, you know, was really um, at its peak in the 1960s. Um, and as I write later in the book, that celebrity for her also became grounded. She began to mobilize it into a political practice. So she increasingly began to commit her work towards the struggle for black life, um, performing, you know, fundraisers. She performed at the March on Selma, uh, for example. Um, and uh, the radical um, um, impulses that were um, animating the activism within her work, which also had a great deal to do with the social world in which she was living. So folks like Langston Hughes, James Baldwin, Lorraine Hansberry, um, all of whom she had deep friendships with and all of whom are part of, um, you know, a queer black New York in the mid-century. Um, uh, uh, all of this happens at sort of the peak of her celebrity, but this commitment to the struggle for Black life, which also begins to materialize in her work in pieces like Mississippi Goddamn, um, uh, it leads to um, uh, a kind of backlash in terms of audiences. So audiences, uh, white audiences in particular, um, uh, uh, begin to shy away from Nina Simone. Um, it's also tethered to a difficult period in her life. Um, uh, I don't think the um, uh, uh, difficulties that characterize Nina Simone's life are underreported. Um, and I actually sort of made an active choice in this book not to, 
to ignore um, that question, but but not to focus so centrally on it because I think it's really common. Uh, and actually, it was while doing the research for this, I watched both a documentary on Nina Simone and a documentary on David Bowie. And the documentary on Simone largely focused on um, her relationships and on mental health. Um, whereas the documentary on Bowie gives us like 30 seconds on his massive drug bender that was the 1970s and mostly focuses on the impact that he's had on the world as an artist, right? Oh, isn't um, so that one weird? of the things it's right. So one of the things I, I wanted to really focus on was formally and technically what, what Simone's impact and politically what her impact was on the world and not say that her life didn't, didn't matter, but that I wasn't going to center, um, her scene of struggle in this story. So, but, but the, this is to say that by 1976, um, her audiences had been shifting, drying up, um, her relationship with her husband, which was, uh, an unhappy and a violent relationship, um, came to a conclusion and he was also her business manager. Um, and, uh, uh, when she left him, um, and when that relationship ended, the business just really fell apart. So by the 1970s, um, you know, she lived in the Caribbean for a period um, and then relocated to Europe. Um, and um, she was putting her daughter through private school in Europe um, and um, got this invitation to perform at Montreux in 1976. Um, and and but this is not a time when, you know, she had been in the, the spotlight for a lot. And in some ways, I sort of suspect in the material that I came upon is that she took the gig in part because the money was substantive and she she uh, her daughter was in school. Um, and so, you know, the performance is is pretty famous for her. Um, she has just sort of a relative disdain for the audience. She says at one point, you know, I thought I was going to write a new song for you. And then I realized you weren't worthy. Um, uh, <laughs> and and then she goes on to kind of indicate part of it is you're not here. She says, you're not here for Nina Simone. Um, she knew it was at this jazz festival. She's like, you're here for this festival. You don't particularly, what I could give you is not something that you're necessarily here to accept. Um, so it's a, a fascinating performance to watch because her give and take with the audience is really, really intense. Um, but her relationship to the music is as it always was. Um, extraordinary. And the piece that I write about in the beginning of the chapter is her performance of the song, I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free. Um, and the song had initially appeared on one of her albums in the 1960s. Um, uh, and um, that recording, I think it's 1967. Uh, I think the album is Silk and Soul, although I'm mm -hmm. uh, a little hazy right now. I should have double checked that before. I, I think that's um, right. I think it is on Silk and Soul. Okay. Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, that is a kind of, when you listen to that, that recording of the piece, it's just, it's buoyant. Um, and it's, um, it has this kind of great going beyond to it, um, where, where if she doesn't know what it is to be free, that wish, um, to know, um, what the feeling of freedom is like lifts her up and she is just soaring. Um, and it is stunning, uh, to sort of go to that horizon of possibility with her and with her voice. Um, and in the Montreux performance, um, uh, it is technically more complex. The piano work is chunkier in some ways. Um, uh, her voice is less buoyant um, and it is contemplative and it is somewhat dark, but there is also a real commitment to a kind of praxis of feeling that feeling of freedom. Um, and, and I cite her in the book at some point as saying, you know, when someone says, what is freedom to you? And she says, it is a feeling. 
And I couldn't really name it, but I know what that feeling is. And she says, there have been some times on stage when I've been able to reach and touch that feeling. And so for, for me and in this project, Simone became a primary theorist of how performance can work in, in pursuit of both survival and the emancipatory principle. Um, and I have questions about what emancipation is or whether it's something we should be pursuing, but, but, um, but that in the, that Simone herself theorizes performance as this place in which if freedom isn't possible, we might be able to feel it. And in feeling it in that moment, even if that feeling comes apart, we might be able to galvanize those feelings towards political action, towards bringing about the conditions under which freedom might be imaginable. Um, and, and so, uh, uh, that's why I turned to Mon- the Montreux performance to begin with, in part because as she is articulating this desire to know the feeling of freedom, it is also in a moment of, you know, um, you know, fractious unhappiness for her, right? And it's the simultaneity of those two things, um, the seeking and feeling the feeling of freedom in a moment in which maybe things aren't all right, um, that seemed a kind of powerful, um, both gesture and, uh, let's say, praxis of the emancipatory will, and in particular of a black will towards emancipation um, that Simone is articulating in that performance. So that's why I started there. It's also just yeah. a good song. I wanted people to listen to it. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off it's a very good song yeah that's true um so you talk about nina simone's work as being one of these kind of imminent moments of liberation uh but you also insist that we have to understand her work as work as as labor and as waged labor uh early in her career when she's performing like eight hour sets at a at a dingy bar in atlantic city uh, and and seeing how much box she can play before the bartender notices. So uh, why is it important for you to kind of name her work as as work as labor? Uh, why why is that an important kind of element to keep in mind, even as we recognize that it is a performance that could be transcendent and liberating for herself and for others? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I would say. It was important for me to mark that all artistic labor is labor. And it's something that I return to throughout the book. And it's, um, and the thing about artistic labor is it's hard to quantify as labor. So there's a moment in the introduction where, you know, if um, Simone is one of my theoretical muses in the introduction, um, Marxist Grindry says the other one. And if anything, um, the introduction is a kind of mashup of Simone and Marx, the Grindrisa and how it would feel to be, or I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. Um, and part of the reason I want to underline that is that, um, uh, especially in the United States, uh, you know, 
artists work is not seen as work. And so it is not compensated um, to an extraordinary degree. For example, I work in, you know, the university system and um, as an institutional um, thing, uh, it's not uncommon for the faculty on art schools to be paid substantially less than faculty in say, um, you know, uh, uh, other areas of arts and science, not the arts so much, but um, in the sciences or even, you know, like an English professor is generally going to be making more than a studio art professor. And oftentimes when you talk to administrators, the way they'll frame things like this is like, oh, well, artists are just happy to have a job, right? As if that were a good reason to exploit um, right. someone for less. We're exploiting them because we can. <clears throat> that's correct. Right. That's it. And that's exactly it, right? Because like, what other option do they have? Like here they have benefits in teaching. So if we're paying them 10, 20, $30,000 less than the person down the hall for them, they could just be an artist out on the street, Right. And part of that is because artist labor doesn't get paid, except for a few artists who are able to be able to make a killing, right? Most artists are barely able to make a living unless they pick up other jobs like teaching, um, like working as professors. Um, and if you are an artist whose work is not circulating or does not circulate in your lifetime, um, you may never uh, uh, see that money. And, and within this um, system of economic exchange, what's even worse than that is after you die, someone who you never even knew may become a millionaire selling um, off your work. And I think about, you know, folks like Jack Smith um, when I say that. So, so Simone seemed to me, um, as I was trying to articulate and make the case that artistic labor is labor, that it is work, that it is a job, um, Simone was a really good example of that for me for a number of reasons. Um, one is that, um, I'm a Virgo and I love a technician. So I love someone who really works <laughs> at, at technique and craft. Um, and Simone is, is like a kind of technician par excellence, right? The, the classic story yeah. that we're told about her is that she wanted to be a classical pianist and she worked so hard, you know, from, from the point of childhood, she worked so hard to be able to train classically. She did everything she was supposed to do. Um, and then is still denied um, entry into a conservatory in um, Philadelphia. I'm forgetting the name just off the top of my head right now. But um, and she does a little work at Juilliard, but then is denied entrance into conservatory. In her autobiography, she says, um, you know, I, I effectively knew that the reason that I was being denied was because I was a black woman. Um, and she even says, I spoke to some faculty who said, well, we recognize that we need to to admit black students. And she says, well, I knew that I wasn't the right type of black black student. I was I was a dark skinned woman from the South. Right. Um, uh, and and she says another thing which is profoundly powerful, where she says, but the difficult thing about these kinds of situations, these forms of racial discrimination institutionally, is that it's always done in such a way that you can never know. Right. So it always eats at you because you think maybe I wasn't enough. Maybe I wasn't good enough. And even if you know that you did the work to get in, that will still eat at you in a way. Um, and, and this relationship to her work kind of characterizes her career and in I'm sorry, this ambivalent relationship to the work characterizes her career in a lot of ways. So she doesn't get into music school, but she does, as you mentioned, um, get a job first, actually uh, teaching vocal lessons, which is how she learns a lot of her repertoire. Um, uh, she describes getting bored of all the standards and so digging deep into um, music, uh, uh, sheet music collections to find songs people hadn't heard from songs, which is how musicals and such, which is how we get her like extraordinary rendition of an otherwise not well-known song like Lilac Wine. Um, uh, uh, and after working for a while as a vocal teacher, she realized, oh, I could make a little bit more money playing in this bar. Um, and so she goes to the bar and she first shows up wearing 
a gown that she would be performing if she were playing in a classical concert. She wouldn't drink, so she has a cup of milk with her beside her. And she goes in and she starts mashing up these popular tunes that she had been learning while teaching people vocal lessons um, with Rachmaninoff and with Bach. Um, and we can get a sort of idea of what those early performances would sound like because her very first album, Little Girl Blue, um, which was recorded in one grueling, I think, 13-hour session, um, features some of these kinds of where you have Rachmaninoff and you know, Bach entering into the song Love Me or Leave Me. Um, um, but then also, you know, um, uh, folks like Duke Ellington uh, making an appearance in the work as well. And it's so much about technique and labor, the precision that it took to learn how to do these Rachmaninoff runs, um, the labor of learning all of this music while teaching people to sing. And yet when people uh, will talk about Nina Simone, right, they, they, uh, when we talk about most artists, we often talk about the sort of um, um, experience of the work, the transcendent or not so transcendent feelings that we may have when encountering the work. And we, we somehow diminish the fact that there were hours and hours of labor that went into producing that effect. Um, and more than that, um, for performers in particular, I think um, when a performer puts on a good show and we have a good experience with that show, there's some part of us that needs to believe that they were truly enjoying what they were doing. And this is, you know, in particular when you go to a concert and I can't even think of who one would go to see in concert right now because there are no concerts. Um, um, Carly you know, Rae Jepsen. That is not a concert I would go to. I was about to say Beyonce, Sorry, but, uh, <laughs> but but I would say you know Beyonce is a good example where when folks go to a yeah. concert, they need to believe she's having a great time on stage. But it's her job, and like any of us, there are days when I go to my job and I love it, and there are other days where I'm like, this is a fucking job, and I hate this in this moment. Like mm-hmm. this is how I'm getting paid. Uh, uh, and Simone was very open about that that there were times where she just hated showing up and doing her job, but it was a job. And so she did it and she did it well. And I, and I, part of why I wanted to underline that in particular is that I think black women artists um, get mobilized to serve a lot of people's agendas. Um, And if we can forget that Simone was a laborer who not only was working on things like craft and technique, but was also putting in hard hours that took a lot from her it is um, less easy to completely appropriate her for an agenda because we have to recognize her as a laborer who in many ways was very privileged, but who was also exploited. And in particular, as a black woman working in in, um, an industry that has been um, profoundly abusive and dismissive of black women, um, that there are real costs to that. And this bared out in her life, which is that she spent her whole life chasing down royalties um, for for work that, that she never saw you know, a dime for. So for example, the Montreux concert that we mentioned earlier, um, part of the reason that it's likely that she was invited to perform on at Montreux after being out of the limelight for years is that a Chanel um, commercial had suddenly made Nina Simone Vogue again because um, they used My Baby Just Cares For Me, which is a track she recorded for Little Girl Blue. And she like, you know, saw the commercial. Nobody paid her a cent for that, right? She didn't get a cent for mm-hmm. that. So I really wanted to emphasize artistic labor as labor, both to to frame the fact that we need to actually think about what are the structural conditions that we can produce as a society to pay laborers for their art, or artists for their labor. What would it mean if when somebody graduates from an MFA, instead of leaving with $80,000 of debt and good luck trying to pay this back, someone were actually subsidized to practice their craft, even if that craft never became commercially or even critically successful, but that it was understood that they were going to their job just like the person who's showing up 
um, for a job at the bank. And then secondarily, when we take in artists who we love to remember that they are also laborers is in some way to return to them um, the humanity of the person that created the work so that we don't just merely romanticize and take from them um, without honoring what they made and gave to us. Sorry, that was a very long answer to that. No, no, that was great. And it strikes me that this is sort of a parallel argument to the argument that a lot of Marxist feminists make about all kind of forms of reproductive labor, that if you insist that something is like a labor of love, that can become a very easy way to dismiss claims of compensation. But if you insist that, you know, work can be work, even while there's an element of love to it, whether it's performance or childcare or, or what have you, or, or cooking, you know, that that can be a kind of theoretical ground for demanding uh, compensation. Yeah. And I think, you know, in many ways, um, aesthetic labor, though, it has often been um, um, uh, sort of marked off by men and, and men have taken credit for it. Um, aesthetic labor, we could think of as falling into the forms of labor that often get sort of gendered as Um, feminized forms of labor. And I'm thinking here of reproductive labor and care work. And I'm thinking specifically of the ways in which Marxist feminists have really drawn our attention to the ways in which these forms of labor, care work, affective labor, um, uh, do not get framed as, as labor, but as you say, as labor of love. Right. And I, you know, and I think strategically when we look at say the wages for housework movement and folks like Dalla Costa and James, um, you know, they were very tactical in saying the reason that we are, are, we are Marxists and we, we, uh, you know, many of them were aligned, folks like Dalla Costa were aligned with autonomia, which, you know, was very much moving for the abolition of work altogether. Um, and so there was a kind of contradiction there. Well, what does it mean to be calling for the abolition of work while also be calling for housework for, or I'm sorry, wages for housework? And and what folks like Dalla Costa and Federici um, uh, and James put forward was that what giving wages to houseworkers would do was would be to force the economy and to force the broader society to just recognize this as labor first. And then we can talk right about how we move mm-hmm. towards abolition. And I think a similar conversation should also be extended into the realm of artistic labor, um, especially because when, when women and artists of color um, are able to enter into aesthetic labor and are not foreclosed and cut out from it, they are that much more vulnerable from the forms of exploitation um, and economic disenfranchisement um, that, say, their white male counterparts um, uh, are subject to. And this is a theme that's taken up in a number of the pieces that you talk about, like uh, Ryan Rivera's piece, Sustain. Could you describe that piece and and kind of why you find it so remarkable? Sure. Um, so Rivera was... Um, a conceptual artist, a video artist, a performance artist, um, working in New York um, in largely in the late 90s um, before his death in um, the sort of mid 2000s. Um, And I, you know, write in the book that Ryan was also a friend. um, And the book is um, a response not just to the death of my teacher, uh, Jose Munoz, but also to Ryan and to a dear friend of mine, Sam Pedraza, uh, who died um, uh, the same year that Jose died. Um, and uh, I have, it's always been um, Ryan's death, uh, which was in the mid 2000s, um, meant in some ways that his body of work, uh, I thought would sort of recede from the world um, because, you know, it had, he'd had showing in a couple of uh, August places, including um, El Museo del Barrio 
in New York, um, had received an undergraduate degree from um, um, uh, a studio, uh, sorry, SVA in New York, um, but otherwise had not circulated a lot. Um, so part of turning to that piece was, which was um, screened in the theater, El Teatro at El Museo, um, was in part just about sort of holding a place in the record for Ryan's work. Um, and in the piece, uh, what one gets, it's about a six minute loop and it's a close shot of a bathtub. And there is a woman in the bathtub um, wearing her bra um, and her panties and she's just scrubbing and there's nothing else in the tub. She's just scrubbing and you sort of hear this sort of perpetual loop of the scrubbing sound. Um, and if you look at some point, you'll notice that she has, um, you know, a diamond ring on. Right. Um, and the woman in the film is Ryan's mother, um, who, um, not unlike her son, um, became ill and passed, um, at a very young age. Um, and, um, uh, I, I remember when the film was screened and, uh, one of the things Ryan said to me is that it was very important to include that diamond ring because so many people devalue the labor of cleaning, but that was the labor through which his mother had kept him and his sister and his, his family alive, that it was by doing housework in other people's homes that she was able to sustain them. And he titled the piece Sustain. Um, and so while it is on the one hand a document of the kind of exhausting and repetitive labor um, um, that women of color are often circumscribed into in terms of domestic labor, um, uh, it was also a portrait of, um, that labor as that, which, uh, brought great wealth, great, sorry, brought great wealth into their lives. And I don't mean wealth in the sense of like the monetary wealth of the diamond, but the richness of living. Um, and for me, it was also deeply resonant insofar as, uh, my mother who is black and Japanese, um, on the black side of my family, but also her Japanese mother, um, for generations, I can trace back women uh, in my family performing domestic labor. So uh, when uh, I was first born, my mother was working as a domestic laborer before she went on to be a teacher, which is another realm of affective and reproductive labor that is, um, again, deeply gendered um, and, and feminized and deeply devalued. Um, so in seeing Ryan's piece, this elevation of the labor of reproductive labor as that which sustains and makes um, literally makes queer color life in Ryan's case possible. Um, it seemed really, really important to highlight that. And I would say the one last thing is that my reading in that section on sustain is also deeply inflected by the work of Sandra Ruiz, um, who in her um, recent book, Recanness, um, has a chapter on Rivera's work and the cover of her book is, um, is uh, a shot from one of Rivera's pieces. Um, uh, and, and I mentioned that just because if there was this fear that Ryan's work would fade, um, as Keith left the world, um, there is to me a great joy in the fact that that work is reproduced and carried forward with such brilliant theoretical and critical care in Ruiz's treatment of his body of work. Thank you for that. Um, another artist who you talk about is Felix Gonzalez Torres. Uh, and you refer to him simply as Felix at points, uh, kind of conveying a certain intimacy that his work seems to create. And you say that a lot of the people who you know who know his work refer to him in this way. Could you talk about what in his work creates that feeling of intimacy? 
Sure. I mean, some of it is that, you know, um, so Felix Gonzalez Torres was a visual artist um, who was producing work largely in uh, from the very late 80s to the mid 1990s until he um, passes um, uh, due to AIDS. Um, and uh, uh, I went to study with uh, Munoz because I was obsessed with Felix Gonzalez Torres when I was an undergrad. And um, uh the book Disidentifications has a chapter on his work and it was the first thing I'd seen written on him that really accounted um, for the fact that he was a queer of color person, that he was uh, uh, Cuban, uh, Cuban American, a Cuban refugee. Um, and so much of the literature on, on Felix Gonzalez Torres um, really just sort of strips race from the account, right? So queerness will be, you know, a kind of a, a sort of hazy, aesthetically charming queerness is present but that's, that's about it. And some of that, I think, was tactically something he was doing in the mid-1990s when the work of artists of color and the work of queer artists was being really viciously attacked by the right. And this is something I write about in the book um, and not certainly not defended by uh, whatever we could call the left in that moment. Um, uh, and often on deeply homophobic and deeply racist grounds. And so part of his practice um, was twofold. One was that it was incredibly oblique. Right. So instead of materializing, um, say, uh, queer sex and queer sexuality, um, he created these pieces that referenced life and that could reference queer life and could even reference queer sex and sexuality. But in just an oblique enough way that, as he once said, Senator Stevens um, looked really stupid showing up at my show to denounce all this homosexual art. And instead, all he found were stacks of paper and piles of candy. That's a very gross paraphrase, but that's sort of what he said. Sure. Sure. Um, and, and, uh, and yet what one might find with the pile of candy is, um, uh, for example, one of his pieces that I write a little bit, um, is untitled Ross Moore and the ideal weight of that piece, it's a stack of candy and the spectator is invited to take pieces of the candy with them. Right. And so what you watch is this stack of candy slowly diminish in size over time. And there is a projected ideal weight for the piece. Um, and that ideal weight was, I believe this is the right piece. I might be fuzzing the details on the piece. So don't yell at me, art historians out there who are checking up on this. But um, <laughs> the ideal weight um, uh, was or could be the weight of his body weight and his partner Ross's weight combined. Ross Moore is the street that they lived on together um, during the one year that they were able to live together. Ross was a Canadian, Felix was in the U.S. and um, immigration laws um, kept queer couples uh, with different national status apart at that time. But they were able to live together in Los Angeles. And he writes of that time as a period of great happiness of being together, but also of mourning because he was literally watching Ross waste away. And one of the things that happens as you take, as spectators take the candy, is that the piece itself begins to diminish and waste away and disappear over time. Um, so I think one of the reasons that people often have a familiar relationship to Felix um, is because he was constantly giving his work away to his spectators, right? So we're constantly taking his work and bringing it into our homes. And there was a, there is when somebody gives you something, you start to feel like you know them on some level. And when they keep doing it, mm -hmm. you're like, oh, this person keeps giving me a gift. I think for my generation, um, I just turned 40, um, like about a week and a half ago. And for my generation who were coming to consciousness of our queerness in the 1990s at the height of the AIDS crisis, when anti-queer animus was profoundly intense and in some ways unthinkable in relationship to um, the public discourse today, although I, I think that homophobia remains pretty intense and just less articulated as such um, in some cases. Um, but that to see 
this artist who in many ways could own his queerness, could name his place in the world vis-a-vis what it is to be queer and a person of color, and to see him um, also be celebrated in places like, you know, he had a show at the Guggenheim in 1995. Um, and I, you know, I, I think one could name the number of solo shows that the Guggenheim has given to queer artists of color. Uh, Jan Vo, who I write about in the book, uh, recently had a show at the Guggenheim at that level, but Felix had it in 95. And I'm not saying getting a show at the Guggenheim is the end all be all. I'm just saying it meant something to see an artist, um, circulating and having the impact that he was having and not giving up who and what he was while still being oblique and strategic. So generationally, I think one of the things that happened is I just sort of noticed that there's just amongst many, many folks that people will just refer to him as Felix or the, you know, that, that, um, people talk about him as if they knew him. And to be honest, one of the things that I noticed after Munoz died was that was a similar thing. I noticed students talking about him as Jose or, um, and at first that really irked me, uh, just because I was like, uh, it was strange and jarring to hear the name of someone that I, um, knew and loved, um, being spoken about so familiar, familiarly, that was not a word, um, with someone that I kn- knew had not known him. And then what I started to realize that it is that this is part of the gift of making work that affects people is they develop a relationship, um. And so one of the things I wanted to name in the chapter is the way that there is this kind of abstract relationship with a figure like Felix. And it was a kind of subtle way of me coming to terms with the abstract relationship that, you know, many students have with, um, you know, a figure like, um, like Munoz. Um, um, and to recognize that that is a kind of way of sharing out, right? And that one can actually be familiar with without let's say thieving intimacy or presuming too much intimacy, but that there can still be a kind of familiarity. And I think Felix's work was very much grounded in that kind of sharing out. Um, Even though most of us don't know that much about his life, other than the details that he was willing to share in, in sort of scraps and fragments. And for many of us, that's enough. So that's kind of where that came from. And then part of what I tried to do in the chapter is also give some of that background so that people would, have a sense of this is the person you're talking about when you talk about Felix or one version of that story. I try to offer one version of that story. Was that part of what you wanted to do in this book, create that feeling of closeness and intimacy? I ask because you share quite a lot of your own biography in this book and it's, it's by no means is it a memoir or anything like that, but you do give details about yourself and your family and the way that kind of your particular histories uh, affect your relationship to the work you write about. Um, was that a, a conscious goal of yours to create that feeling of, of intimacy and, and to let your readers feel like they have gotten to know you as a person? Um, it's funny. I like, I actually, uh, I, I'm always a little bit surprised when folks say, well, you share um, stuff from your biography because in some ways I'm so shady in the book, which is that I think I created the impression that I was sharing um, stuff about myself, but mostly I share stuff about people I know, which is, is like <laughs> kind of tacky. So I talk a lot about the people I love, right? I talk about my mm-hmm. grandparents and my aunt and my mother. Um, I talk about friends that I have lost like Ryan and Sam and Jose. Um, and, and as one, and then what I, I was trying to share with the reader is the affective landscape of those relationships, of the relationship mm-hmm. to the art and the work 
that I engage with. And I try to write in a way, I mean, the thing I would usually say when I sat down to start writing is, okay, what is the feeling? How do you catch the feeling? And how do you then let the feeling sort of enter into the work? Um, and that was a formal choice that I was making because I think as critics and especially aesthetic critics, the sort of tradition of Western aesthetic criticism is all about this sort of like weird notion of formal objectivity, which I find just like honestly profoundly white um, uh, in its its framework and and just impoverished in, in so many ways because it's like I, I, I was always confused when a teacher would say, well, what one's opinion of the piece is doesn't matter. What matters is formally what it's doing. And I'm like, those two things are largely inextricable when you really get down to it. So, Mm -hmm. so I was trying to create a sense of affective intimacy, but I also um, worked pretty hard not to actually give away that many details about myself at all. um, uh, Because I, I, I didn't feel like I needed to share much about sort of my own position. And maybe I gave away more than I thought I was giving. Um, well, yeah. So I think this is one of the really interesting things about the book is that, you know, since I feel like you've sort of given me permission to say how the book affected me as a reader. And one of the things that you do is you speak to the reader as if we know you. And yeah. so you sort of assume knowledge that we obviously don't have. I mean, I, I I don't know anything about you other than what we've talked about in the last hour and what I read in your book. But you you will refer to people as if they are our mutual friends. Which yeah. will sort of, which that sort of creates a sense of intimacy much more than if you'd given us, you know, the facts of your life. Because if you tell me the facts of your life, part of what you're saying is you don't think I know them. But when you yeah. don't tell me the facts of your life, it sort of has the opposite of effect where, you know, I sort of nod along and go, uh-huh, yeah, I know this person. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And I think if anything, like, this is maybe where the sort of ethos of the party comes into it, right? Which is... Um, uh, like for one, I didn't, when I was writing the book, I didn't write, think about the, um, the people I wrote about in the book as subjects or objects of analysis. I always thought of them as characters, right? Um, Mm. so, you know, I have main characters like Felix and, um, Nina Simone and Yonvo, um, Eiko, um, Seng Kwon Chi, Muna Seng. And then there are all of these supporting characters of, you know, varying degree who come and go, um, you know, and, And the idea really was to sort of curate the feeling of like, hey, we're at a party with all of these people and I just met you. Right. But I've had a couple uh, I've had a couple drinks. So I'm feeling friendly. We're feeling kind of intimate. So, like, let me take you on a tour. Let me introduce you to some of some of my friends. Let's hang out with them for a couple of hours and see what we can like get out of the world in that process. So in that sense, I think the address to the reader was meant to be intimate. And I think when I was writing it, I had I was very specific. Um, I was often writing to specific people. Um, I, you know, I can think of certain students of mine who I was struggling with questions or ideas with. And so I would write to them. Um, uh, sometimes it was to Jose. I mean, in the preface and the afterward, it is very explicitly and directly written to him. Although it actually never says that it's to him, but there is a you and it's implied. And there's a footnote that reveals that, yes, this is indeed Jose I'm writing to. Um, and, and then I also tried to write, I think, um, to that. Um, I tried to write to that uh, kid, I'll say kid for lack of a better word, although maybe they might be 90 years old, Um, that person in the world who doesn't feel that they have a place in the world, maybe because they're too black or they're too brown or they're too queer, too trans or not enough of any of those things. Um, And I tried to imagine that that person was reading. And so I just said, like, I'm speaking to you. This is who I'm speaking to. So 
Um, I did want it to create a feeling of intimacy. I did want that. And I understand that there is also then always that risk that that feeling of intimacy um, may feel like one knows more or less about me than they actually do. But I think that's how intimacy is. And intimacy isn't always just someone that you have known and been close to for years and years and know everything about. We often have extraordinary moments of real intense but fleeting intimacy with someone that we just spend a night with at a party um, and maybe a few hours after um, with as well. So, so um, it was intentional to create the intimacy, um, but also with the knowledge that it didn't necessarily reveal as much about me as one may have experienced. And that's okay because that's the incommensurability of relationality. And also the actual details of my life are not very interesting. <laughs> The people I know are much more interesting. Great. Well, I feel like we've kind of come full circle back to the idea of the party. Um, So maybe that's a good place to end on. Uh, Joshua Chambers-Letson, thanks so much for your beautiful book. And thanks for taking the time to be on New Books in Performing Arts. Not at all. It's been such a pleasure to be here. And thank you for giving me a chance to reflect on something that I mostly feel um, awkward and ambivalent about. But it was nice to have a moment to feel all right about. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.